Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open to the book of John, we're going to be in uh, chapter 18 and 19. We're going to be in a few other places in John, so you want to be moving around a bit. Uh, I do want to let you know that we won't have any slides, and so your ability to read Scripture in your hands is going to be very helpful today. Um, And while you're turning there, I have a question for you, and that is, have you ever heard the acronym SWAT, S-W-O-T? Not like SWAT a fly, but S-W-O-T. I've run into that acronym a few different times at leadership conferences, and I've seen it in various books and seminars. And SWAT stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. You see, when organizations and individuals go through a SWOT assessment, they look at what they're good at. They look at what they do well. They look at their strengths. They also consider their weaknesses. They also uh, con- um, consider what opportunities are on the horizon. And then finally, they look at what threats may jeopardize their mission or even their very existence. And when organizations go through these types of assessments, they can take several hours or even several days to carefully analyze these elements for their organization. And I understand that a careful understanding of these uh, impact the measure. A careful understanding of the impact of these measurements is valuable for an organization or even for an individual. And failure to properly assess where someone is or where a group is could lead to misguided decisions and miscalculated actions. And of these four, the one, in my opinion, it seems like it it causes the most challenge or has the risk of greatest harm are the threats those things that are coming against us. And I bring that up today because as we continue to study in the book of John, we come to a place, we come to a chapter in chapter 18 and 19, even as we just read, that is a chapter fraught with threats. Threats against Jesus, threats against organizations, threats against Pilate. And I want to help us understand where this is coming from because the, the perceived threats have prompted a certain outcome. So with your fingers, with your hands in John chapter 18, let me ask you to turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 11. This is the uh, chapter, actually a chapter that I was looking at with the high schoolers this morning, but in John chapter 11 is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And uh, in response to what Lazarus, what Jesus did Um, Now, this happened about six months before the the crucifixion, six months before the Passover. But in response, here's what some of the Jews said. Look at chapter 11, verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did. This is after Jesus raised Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So do you see the, the feel the threat that these religious leaders had because of Jesus they were, they were threatened by his influence. They were threatened by his growing popularity. They were fearful, at least from an earthly measurement, 
that they would lose their position and authority, that they would lose their power. And unfortunately, they are overlooking the fact that he, Jesus, is the very fulfillment that they had been looking for. And yet they were missing it all the while. But look at what happens next. Look down in verse 49 of chapter 11. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation Uh, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So the high priest, the ruler of this council, calms the group and, and calms their anxieties and said, hey guys, we've got this handled. He just needs to die and that'll fix all of our problems. And so from that day forward, for the next several months, they began making claims against Jesus. They began gathering almost like in a court of law. They're gathering their evidence in order to present it to make sure that Jesus dies so that he doesn't consider what he's doing. But think about this. Here's Caiaphas, this high priest. He's ruling this, this council, and he makes this prophecy, which then begs the question, where do prophecies come from? Where did they come from? Who gives prophecies? God does. God gives prophecies. So that meant that God would have endowed Caiaphas with the ability to understand that Jesus had to die. And so now we've got this clash of kingdoms beginning to happen. The kingdom of man, the religious leaders want to hold on to their power, and God recognizes that his salvation is coming, and it has to come through Jesus Christ. So now they're meeting together. As we see through the rest of Scripture, God was used this prophecy in order to accomplish something completely different than what the Jewish leaders, what the religious leaders were expecting. He was doing something much grander, where people from every nation, tribe, and language would be gathered together as his people. It wasn't just one language group, wasn't just one people group, but it was available for everyone. So over the next few months, as I said, they gathered their material for their case against Jesus, their biggest threat. Meanwhile, Jesus continues to preach and teach about the kingdom of God. So we come to the passage that we're looking at today. So flip back to John 18, uh, verses, uh, chapter 18 and 19. We're going to begin around uh, verse 27 or 28. You see, this, what, what we're looking at here, if you remember last week, Jesus was arrested and he was taken to this guy named Annas and he had sort of a trial in front of the religious leaders. And now today we get the political trial. Jesus is presented in front of this political leader named Pilate. We read about him a few moments ago. And, and ultimately we have to understand this takes place because even though the Jews in their minds had convicted Jesus and and thought that he deserved to die, they had no means of killing him. The Romans had taken that away from them, which is a good thing. Every government should take it away from the ability of a religious group to be able to kill people. It, so, so he had to go through this political trial. He had to go through this civil trial in front of Pilate. But I think in light of this passage, we can discern several things that threaten earthly kingdoms. 
And for the purpose of our conversation, I want to just think about two things that threaten earthly kingdoms and how they may or may not affect God's kingdom. And so first of all, we learn that earthly kingdoms are threatened by influence. You see, Jesus had gained so much influence. He had gained so much popularity that the religious leaders, thinking in earthly terms, were threatened by him. Here's another passage from uh, what we read several, several weeks ago, John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world, exaggeration, has gone after him. And they're beginning to be afraid. They couldn't control Jesus. They couldn't control his popularity and they felt like his popularity was a threat to their authority. But, you know, we see this all the time in various movements. And we could talk over and over again about the next movement to come up and, and threaten some sort of authority. So political leaders have to assess, religious leaders even have to assess, is this something worth getting behind? Or is this something we should leave behind? Black Lives Matter, Tea Party, me Too movement. We could go on and on and on and on and count countless movements and influences that have come up where political leaders and various other groups have to say, well, do I want to acquiesce to this? Do I want to accommodate this group? Or do I want to stand firm? There's that political game that these leaders are playing. So they're looking at Jesus. They're looking at his popularity and his influence, and they're saying, we don't want any of that. He was a legitimate threat to their leadership because he undermined their controlling reign because he, Jesus, was calling people to a direct relationship with God. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that the earthly kingdom here is represented both by the religious leaders and the political leaders. You've got both working in the same realm. They think they're operating differently, but the religious leaders are thinking from an earthly perspective. The political leaders are also thinking from that earthly perspective. For, for instance, Pilate, he knows that the religious leaders wield a lot of influence in his region. So he has to carefully balance a heavy-handed rule and cooperation with the re religious influencers. He's walking a political tightrope, and it's perilously threatening to him. And I think the, the religious leaders know this. They gave Pilate just enough information for him to detach some soldiers in order to arrest Jesus. And then after their religious trial, look at chapter 18, verse 30, they basically tell him, look, if this man had not been doing evil, we would not have delivered him to. You don't need to know any of the details. You just need to know that he deserves to die. Just enough information, right? We learn a bit later that they must have given Pilate some information that would truly be helpful and threatening to Pilate. Because Pilate's first question to Jesus in verse 33 was, are you the king of the Jews? You see, this question gives us some insight into the fact that they had given that information. Jesus, as a popular teacher, a miracle worker, would not have been a big deal to Pilate. But if he was a political leader, if he was a king looking to usurp the authority of the local magistrate, looking to usurp the authority of Rome, that now Jesus is a real threat. And so they present him, this evildoer, as someone who claimed to be king. But I think it's important for us to understand that not only are earthly kingdoms threatened by influence, we have to recognize that Jesus' kingdom is not threatened by unbiblical influences. 
You see, when Pilate asks if he's a king, Jesus never admits it. He never says, yep, I'm a king. His words are always, you say I'm a king. One commentator kind of said, basically said, king is your word. It's almost like king is not a big enough word to describe what Jesus really is. John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting and I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And I think part of the reason God's kingdom or Jesus' kingdom is not threatened by unbiblical influence is that his kingdom operates from a completely different viewpoint. Earthly kingdoms hold their power by force. And we see this happening in Europe with Russia and Ukraine as Russia's trying to forcibly take over. We see this happen as regimes change all the time. It's by force, it's by coercion. We observe it also in our own political system. One person tries to wield influence over another and they play political games. But Jesus even says that if his kingdom were of this world, then his people would stand up and fight. But because he operates his kingdom by other rules, fighting, political games, power grabs are not a part of his kingdom. Biblical values of humility, service, sacrifice are hallmarks of Jesus' kingdom. And throughout Scripture, God has communicated over and over and over again that he's working from a different plane. He's working from a different perspective. Isaiah 55, 8 to 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, Jesus' kingdom will prosper not because we pass certain laws, not because we get, make sure that one party is in control. Our, Jesus' kingdom will not prosper because of anything political that's happening. Jesus' kingdom will prosper when the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls are transformed by his sacrificial love and his mercy and his grace. His kingdom is different. Think about this. A couple months ago, Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. I celebrated that. I rejoiced that that happened. There are over 60 million babies that have died in my lifetime to abortion just here in America. And that's tragic. That's an entire generation of people. And yet, when you look at the response across the country, you see two, a twofold response. One is political groups that from more conservative states are passing down these laws saying abortion is banned all over the place. And other groups are saying, no, abortion is passed. All, we can have it top to bottom, whatever, no limits. So you have these two dichotomies. And I think the challenge we're running into is that both sides are fighting political wars that need to be waged in hearts. We need to capture people's hearts before we can pass laws, in some ways, before we can pass laws. And I don't know, I'm not trying to get overly political with, with that issue. 
But I want us to, do you see the conflict that's there? I mean, look at uh, various conservative states and all the things that they have done in the, in, just in the last election. How many, how many states passed laws that were more extreme than what Roe v. Wade allowed? It's sad. But we haven't captured people's hearts. And I think that's what the kingdom of God, what Jesus is looking at. So Jesus, he's not, his kingdom is not threatened by unbiblical influences. He's not, a, he's not threatened by politics. His kingdom works differently. And I think that's a glorious thing. He fights different kinds of fights. It's not with swords or battles and not necessarily with laws, but it's with transformation. One person to the next to the next. But I think the second threat that we see here against earthly kingdoms is that they're threatened by popular opinion. Have you ever heard that phrase about politicians? They lick their finger and stick it up in the air and figure out which way the wind's blowing and then they decide, oh, that's what I've believed all along until they pivot and have an evolution in their thinking. But get this. I don't know if you caught this in, this, in what we read. Pilate... In, in chapter 18 and 19, declares Jesus innocent, not once, not twice, but three times. He declares Jesus innocent. He wants Jesus set free. Three different times he wants that. After the first declaration, he has Jesus flogged. He has him beaten. Why would you do that? Well, he's trying to appease the crowd. The crowd's saying, hey, we want him dead. Well, okay, let me just beat him up. And it's right at that, that scene, if, if you remember what we read, it's during that time that the soldiers give Jesus purple garments. Well, if you're a king, let's, let's dress you like a king. And they put a, a crown like this on his head, jabbing it into his skin and into his forehead. And they mock him. And then a few minutes later, he declares Jesus innocent yet again in hopes of garnering some sympathy. Look, I beat him up for you. He's beaten and bruised and can barely stand on his own and you still want him dead? Isn't this enough? And they call for his crucifixion. And then a third time, a third declaration of innocence, the Jews reveal the real reason for the death sentence because in their minds, he said that he is the son of God. Jesus said he is the son of God. And it's interesting. It's at this point, if you read in the text in, in uh, John chapter 19, um, verse 7, verse 8 rather, when Pilate heard this statement that he was the son of God, he was even more afraid. Now think about this. Do you remember when you were in school, you were studying Greco-Roman mythology? Right, you remember about that? They have that whole pantheon of gods. You have these gods, and some people, some gods had relationships with humans, and so you have these demigods and these partial, partially deistic beings. And so, in in Pilate's eyes, he wasn't necessarily very very religious, but he was pretty superstitious. And now, I think going through his mind is the fact that if this guy is a demigod, have I just beat up a god? Have I just, am I about to kill a deity? Can you prove that 
Can he, can he be permitted? To, well, he had the political authority to do it, as we, as we see, as we're going to look at more next week. But you see, Pilate at this point is scared. He's afraid that now this deity might be someone like Hercules or even Zeus. He doesn't believe in the one true God of the universe, but he believes in all of those other guys. John chapter 19, verse 12 says that from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And get this, look at where the loyalties just switch. All along, throughout the Gospels, we're looking at the way that the Jewish people look at Rome and they're thinking, we hate this. That ruler is not our ruler. But now they're going to, going to Pilate and say, Pilate, if you let this guy go, you're no friend of Caesar. Caesar's the one true king, which in many ways was blasphemous for them because the one true king of Israel is a descendant of David, of which Jesus is a descendant of David. So Pilate is swayed, and he eventually releases Jesus to be crucified. And I wonder, though, how often do our values change because of popular opinion? How often do our values shift because of the winds of change that are blowing? Or are we firmly established on the word of God? But conversely, we have to recognize Jesus' kingdom is not threatened by changing opinions because Jesus' kingdom is one of truth and truth is consistent. Back in chapter 18, verse 37, when Pilate asked him, he says, so you are a king. And Jesus says, Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, or in other words, king is your word. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, to which Pilate famously replies, what is truth? You see, by earthly standards, truth is personal. Truth is transient. Truth is variable. Truth is yours and mine and theirs, and it's whatever we want it to be. But when Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, he came to reveal the truth of the holiness of God. He came to reveal the truth of the sinfulness of humanity. He came to reveal the truth of the love and grace of God that is available for all. That is eternal, fixed truth. And he said that everyone who, who is of the truth listens to his voice. When we have our ears and our minds tuned to hear his truth, true truth, that's when I believe there is true peace. Our world is clamoring for that right now. Oh, you just be true to you. Not, all the, not recognizing how messed up we are because of our sinful nature. We need to be true to who God made us to be. Our society has become more and more confused over truth. Truth is what we feel. Truth is based on opinion. Truth is based on perspective. But I got to tell you, that kind of truth is no truth at all. You see, truth has a standard. Truth has a plumb line. Truth has a firm foundation. Jesus 
God, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, their revealed truth, God's revealed Word is truth. So the things that threaten earthly kingdoms don't threaten Jesus' kingdom because they're working at different planes. They're working in different realities. But let me just close with one final observation from this passage, and that is that in spite of all of our earthly, king, our earthly schemes, Jesus' kingdom will prevail. You see, one of the things that I found very interesting in studying the passage that we're looking at today is that there is a pattern in it. And that pattern works. We talked about these before. We talked about chiasms, where the thing at the beginning and the thing at the end tie into each other, and then the next thing and the next thing, and then all the way till you get to a central theme. Well, let me show you where that chiasm is. If you have your Bible open and want to write little, if you write in your Bible, great. If not, just you know, write it in your, in your outline here. But let me just show you where this is because not only does the first and the last correspond with each other, but it corresponds with Jesus being outside and inside. Every other time it's outside and inside, outside. It's very interesting. So here's, here's the first stanza. If you look at chapter 18, Verses 28 to 32, they are outside of Pilate's chamber. They have just brought Jesus over to Pilate. And it was early in the day. It was Passover. The Jewish leaders recognized that they can't lawfully put someone to death. And so they make this plea for, for Jesus to die. And we see this, and if you want to write a letter A, I, I put in my, in my Bible a capital letter A, Verses 28 to 32. But then jump down, look in your Bibles to chapter 19, verses 12 to 16. And right next to this, capital A with a little apostrophe. We call it A prime in biblical speak. And this is in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 19. I'm sorry, 12 to 16 in chapter 19, 12 to 16. See, Jesus is again outside. It's the same day. It's late in the day. It's still before the Passover. Now, not only the Jewish leaders, but now the Jewish crowd calls for Jesus' death. They call for crucifixion and they obtain it. So you have that first and the last. What they call for here, they get down here. Let's jump back a little bit. Look at chapter 18, verses 33 to 38. Now Jesus isn't outside Pilate's house. He's inside want to write a capital letter B right next to your thing. You see, Pilate, here's what's interesting here. Pilate doesn't speak on his own accord. He's been given information. Now he's asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus clearly is talking about the fact that he's not of this world. And he's passive. He's saying, oh, this is happening. You're not even in charge here. Jump down a, a, a brief bit. Chapter 19, verses 9 to 11, with capital B apostrophe right next to it. Jesus is again inside. Pilate finds no, I'm sorry, Pilate's power is not his own. It's been given to him from above, whether that's Rome, whether that's some superior authority, whether it's God. He asks Jesus, where are you from? And yet again, Jesus is passive. He's just going along for the ride. Let's jump up a little bit more. Back in chapter 18, verse, the second half of verse 38, 
Jesus is again outside. Pilate finds, this is 38 to 40. This is, if you want to write a letter C right there. Pilate again finds no crime, no guilt in Jesus, no reason to put him to death. He brings him out and he, that he may be set free. Jump down just a tad. Chapter 19, verses four to eight. C, apostrophe. Jesus is again outside with Pilate. Again, he finds no crime in Jesus. He brings him out in hopes that he will be set free. So you have this whole drama kind of unfolding outside Pilate's place, inside Pilate's place, outside Pilate's place, inside. So what is that central theme? What is that core idea that John is painting for? What is, that, what is he putting there in front of us? Well, look in chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. And if you want to write capital letter D, this is the central argument in this. Jesus is inside. He's flogged. He's crowned with a crown of thorns. They put purple garment on his body. They mock him and say, hail, king of the Jews. And then they strike him. And it's interesting, after this point, Pilate refers to Jesus as king more and more. Here is your king. Here is your king. You see, the central point I think that John is trying to help us see is that they are mocking Jesus as king of the Jews. And yet that is exactly what he is, not just king of the Jews, but he is the king of kings. As king of kings, Jesus' kingdom is one without boundaries and ethnic limitations. As we said before, people from every nation, tribe, and language are a part of his kingdom. And yet he is working to capture people's hearts everywhere. Jesus' kingdom is both a threat to no one and a threat to everyone at the same time. You see, he doesn't threaten political boundaries, but his kingdom spans all nations. He doesn't threaten political authority, but he expects that he will be our highest authority. He doesn't threaten political outcomes, as in the outcomes of votes and elections, but he does threaten expedient political values. So I need to ask one final question. Is he your king? Are you running from the threats of earthly kingdoms? Or are you standing confidently in the assurance of God's kingdom? Because essentially what was happening here in, in this chapter and what we're going to see next week is that these people threatened by Jesus' popularity put him before a political leader and condemn him to death at the very same time, fulfilling God's plan for him, not to really fulfilling God's plan so that we might have a relationship with him. It was in God's will that this would happen. And we're gonna look at that more, as I said, 